Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is this the the fourth installment of, of Eli James's ten 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 day of prayer and and fasting, and and the second installment of my presentation, the Christian Institution. Eli keeps putting an S on that of, of the United States of America. If I wanted to talk about the Christian institutions, I, I'm sorry, Eli. I would have to, um, I don't know what I'd talk about. Uh, we don't have any Christian institutions. A bunch of prisons and nuthouses, they're all absolutely anti-Christian. Nah, I'm just making light. That's okay. Okay, we have to get down to business. Well, we have spoken at length about a few men from the Revolutionary Era, and, and continue, we'll continue to do that in the second part of this presentation. I have not avoided the earlier colonial period or discussions about other peoples. However, it was simply not my intent to cover those things, but to concentrate on, on these two certain topics, that the um, certain of, of the key original founders of our nation and, and some of their sayings and documents, just enough to prove and, and that they were good, Christ, decent Christian men. Yet... Before I, uh, we'll, we'll talk later on Sword Brethren segment, I, I, I believe at um, 8 p.m. about the founding of the original colonies and how nearly all of them were founded on, on Christian principles with, with um, a, a Christian way of life for those people in mind. I will touch on that subject here before we commence with the discussion of Thomas Jefferson. I would first like to talk about the founding of Pennsylvania. We all know about the founding of New England colonies for religious reasons, but Pennsylvania was also founded for religious reasons. Here I will quote from pages 82 to 84 of The Christian Life and Character of the Civil Institutions of the United States, written in 1863 by B.F. Morris. William Penn was singularly qualified to be the founder of a Christian commonwealth. He had been educated under the influence of the gospel. He had studied the origin of government, the nature of civil liberty, and the rights of man. In the light of the pure word of God, and formed the purpose of founding a Christian empire on the free and peaceful precepts of Christianity, he had a firm faith in the great American idea that man, educated by Christianity, was capable of self-government. Finding no place in Europe to try the experiment of a Christian government, he resolved to seek it in America. The settlement of the province of Pennsylvania by William Penn formed a new era in the liberties of mankind. It afforded a resting place where the conscientious and oppressed people of Europe might repose and enjoy the rights of civil and religious freedom which mankind derived as an inheritance from the Creator. He obtained from Charles II this is right after the Restoration in England, right after the period of Cromwell, a grant of territory that now embraces the states of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. He was legally inducted to the governorship of this immense domain in England by the officers of the crown, and in 16, before they were all Jews, and in 1682 arrived in the New World and assumed the civil government of the colony. He avowed his purpose to be to institute a civil government on the basis of the Bible and to administer it in the fear of the Lord. The acquisition and government of the colony, he said, was, quote, so to serve the truth and the people of the Lord that an example may be set to the nations. 
The frame of government which Penn completed in 1682 for the government of Pennsylvania was derived from the Bible. He deduced from various passages the original and decent descent of all human power from God, the divine right of government, and that for two ends, first to terrify evildoers, secondly to cherish those who do well. Now, now note Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2.13, and, and William Penn was exactly following those precepts. So that government, he said, seems to be a part of religion itself. And it should be for all real Christians. A thing sacred in its institutions and ends. Let men be good, and the government cannot be bad. That, therefore, which makes a good constitution must keep it, namely, men of wisdom and virtue. Qualities that, because they descend not with worldly inheritance, must be carefully propagated by a virtuous education of youth, which we haven't had in a hundred years. To continue quoting, the first legislative act passed at Chester, the 7th of the 12th month, December 1682, announced the ends of a true civil government. I must say that there you have it, December 7th, 1682. To the Jews, that should be a day of infamy. The preamble recites that, quote, whereas the glory of Almighty God and the good of mankind is the reason and end of government, and therefore, government in itself is a venerable ordinance of God, and forasmuch as it is principally desired and intended by the proprietary and governor, and the freemen of Pennsylvania and territories thereunto belonging, to make and establish such laws as shall best preserve true Christian and civil liberty, in opposition to all unchristian, licentious, and unjust practices, whereby God may have his due, Caesar his due, and the people their due, from tyranny and oppression. The frame of government contained the following article on religious rights. That all persons living in this province, who confess and acknowledge the one almighty and eternal God to be the creator, upholder, and ruler of the world, and who themselves hold themselves obliged in conscience to live peaceably and justly in civil society, shall in no wise be molested or prejudiced for their religious persuasion or practice in matters of faith and worship. Nor shall they be compelled at any time to frequent or maintain any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever. End of quote. Let me make a note that once we are educated in the true Christian religion, we are able to see the aliens in the light of who they truly are practitioners of animism, their original religion before we failed to convert them to Christianity was animism, or one of the voodoo-related superstitions, and the evidence that we have failed, that the evidence that we have failed is that they still practice those vile things, even though now it is often in the name of Christianity or Catholicism. For their many constant crimes reflect the laws written in their hearts, the laws of the jungle. Here, William Penn fully infers that if one does not only profess, but also act like a Christian, that he should indeed be molested and harassed, and has no right in our society. However, one of Penn's shortcomings, like nearly all of the men of his era, was that he did want to convert the aboriginal Indians to Christianity. It has now been 400 years since they have first come into contact with a white man, and they still have no fruit in Christendom.
But Penn was nevertheless a good man. William Penn went about planting his colony and establishing his government in Pennsylvania in 1682, caused the following law to be made. To the end that looseness, irreligion, and atheism may not creep in under the pretense of conscience in this province, be it further enacted by the authority aforesaid, that according to the good example of the primitive Christians and for the ease of the creation, Every first day of the week, called the Lord's Day, people shall abstain from their common toil and labor, that, whether masters, parents, children, or servants, they may better dispose themselves to read the scriptures of truth at home, or to frequent such meetings of religious worship abroad or, or outside of the home, as may suit their respective persuasions. In other words, any form of religion that is acceptable to William Penn, so long as it was a form of the Christian religion. We saw that same expectation in the later attitudes of John Hancock and George Mason, and while there were many others, and there were also many others who felt the same way. We discussed in the first half of this presentation the religious convictions of Hancock, Samuel Huntington, Mason, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, among others, and the persuasive evidence which exists in some of the documents that these very men pr produced. We saw the words of some of our first presidents and their recognition of our Christian God in the official state documents and addresses. We saw that these men were indeed Christian men, although they did not wear their profession on their shirt sleeves with open displays of pious church going and sudden outbursts of joyous psalm singing. Rather, they propounded and sought to live by the actual teachings of Christ. They were anti-priesthood, anti-ritual, and anti-sectarian. They were also racially aware of who they were and cared about the destiny of their race, as we saw explicitly from the writings of Adams and Franklin. Yet, while they did not too often pepper their words with gospel quotes, they certainly sought righteousness with what they wrote. They were true Bible-reading and practicing Christians, and not the hypocrites following after the Pharisees, by making outward displays of piety while rejecting the truth of the word indeed. I am persuaded that today we Israelite identity Christians are the only legitimate heirs to the posterity of these great men, both in our genetics and in our religious practices and beliefs. Now for some notes on Thomas Jefferson. For the same reasons that I omitted a biography of Washington, I am not going to get into a biography of Jefferson. And while I believe that he was a bright and courageous man, there were many lights just as bright in that era, if not brighter, and it is evident that Jefferson was smart enough to emulate them. And, and I mean George Mason and, and Hancock and, and several other men whose works Jefferson admired and copied. Here is a summary on Jefferson's religion from the AmericanRevolution.org. Personal Attacks on Jefferson During his first term, Jefferson was subjected to attacks on his personal character that have rarely, if ever, been matched in presidential history. In 1802, sensational charges against him were publicized by James Thompson Callender, a dissolute and unscrupulous journalist whom he had wisely, unwisely, whom Jefferson had unwisely befriended and who had turned on him 
when not given a lucrative federal appointment. These charges were gleefully taken up by Jefferson's political enemies, but he maintained his policy of making no public reply to personal attacks. Remember, Jefferson was very anti-federalist. The abuse he suffered from newspapers weakened his confidence in a free press. He believed that his triumphant re-election in 1804 justified his toleration of his critics and reflected approval of his public conduct. But the Federalists, in their desperation, continued to publicize the stories the calendar had told. The neo-Federalists do it today. I mean the Jewish media does it today. <laughs> In 1805, in a private letter, Jefferson admitted that, while unmarried, he had made improper advances to the wife of a friend. We all screw up. For this he had made honorable amends, and he denied all the other charges. There appears to be no evidence that he ever again referred to them, and he undoubtedly believed that the best answer to them was the whole tenor of his life. From an early stage in his public career, Jefferson had been subjected to attacks on religious grounds. While he kept his opinions regarding religion very much to himself, believing that they were a private concern, his insistence on the complete separation of church and state was well known. This gained him the support of, quote-unquote, dissenting groups, notably the Baptists, but it aroused bitter opposition among Congregationalists in those parts of New England where the clergy and magistrates still constituted a virtual establishment. From the presidential campaign of 1796, at least, New England clergymen denounced him from their pulpits as an atheist and as an antichrist. False charges. Unlike Thomas Paine, who attacked all sects, which certainly does not mean that he was not a Christian, as we've already seen here with John, John Adams, Jefferson attacked none, and he contributed to many churches, but he was distinctly anti-clerical and was opposed, as opposed to absolutism in priests and, in, and presbyters as he was in kings. In a private letter to Dr. Benjamin Rush in 1800, he said, quote, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Probably also against those who insist on water baptism. That assertion is properly recognized as one of his most characteristic. So we see a pattern here. Since Adams was also against the established priesthood, yet that does not mean that these men were anti-Christian. In fact, it demonstrates that they were of a Christian persuasion more firmly founded in Scripture than the professional priesthood and any of today's Judaized Christians. To continue... In another strictly private communication to Dr. Rush, made in his first term as president, Jefferson revealed his own religious opinions. He believed in God and immortality and was a Unitarian, not to be confused with today's Unitarians, in theology, though he rarely used the term. Comparing the ethical teachings of Jesus with those of the ancient philosophers and the Jews, he expressed the highest appreciation of the former, meaning Christ. He began at this time and finished in old age a compilation of extracts from the Gospels in Greek, English, Latin, and French. He carefully excluded miracles from the compilation, entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. 
It remained unpublished until the 20th century. While opposed to what he regarded as the corruptions of Christianity, he described himself as a Christian, and he undoubtedly sought to follow the ethical precepts of Jesus. Now, I will note that there are many different forms of what is called Unitarianism. The Unitarianism of Jefferson was, with all probability, that 18th and 19th century rationalist Unitarianism, which included the questioning or even the rejection of the inspiration of the Bible. Included. That don't mean Jefferson clung to that. The miracles, the virgin, virgin birth, and even the resurrection. During this period, the Unitarian movement attained its numerical peak of adherence. Jefferson's work, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, is often published as the Jefferson Bible and is still available. While certainly an imperfect Christian, Jefferson was obviously the type of Christian which mattered most among all sects, one who honored the words and the practices of Christ, rather than those who merely worship his image and then depend upon rituals for salvation. So in that important sense, Jefferson was indeed a Christian. Here, we will see a balanced defense of Jefferson's religion from all places. I've abridged this from WorldNet Daily. Quote, While Jefferson has been lionized by those who seek to drive religion from public life, the true Thomas Jefferson is anything but their friend. He was anything but irreligious, anything but an enemy to Christian faith. Our nation's third president was, in fact, a student of Scripture who attended church regularly and was an active member of the Anglican Church, where he served on his local vestry. He was married in church, sent his children and a nephew to a Christian school, and gave his money to support many different congregations and Christian causes. Moreover, his, quote-unquote, notes on religion, nine documents Jefferson wrote in 1776 are very orthodox statements about the inspiration of Scripture and Jesus as the Christ. So what about Jeffer the Jefferson Bible, that miracles-free version of the Scriptures? That, too, is a myth. It is not a Bible, but an abridgment of the Gospels created by Jefferson in 1804 for the benefit of the Indians. Jefferson's, quote, philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth extracted from the New Testament for the use of the Indians, unquote, was a tool to evangelize and educate American Indians. There is no evidence that it was an expression of his skepticism. Here I must note, that we see two different versions of the title and purposes of that book now marketed as the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson, who gave his money to assist missionary work among the Indians, believed his abridgment of the New Testament for the use of the Indians would help civilize and educate America's aboriginal inhabitants. Nor did Jefferson cut all miracles from his work. While the original manuscript no longer exists, the original table of contents that survives includes several accounts of Christ's healings. Jefferson's 802 letter to the Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, in which he cited the First Amendment's creation of a wall of separation between church and state, is an ACLU proof text for its claim that the First Amendment makes the public square a religion-free zone, which I might add is just bull. But if the ACLU is right, why just two days after... Jefferson sent his letter to the Danbury Baptists that he attend public worship 
services in the U.S. Capitol building as president, something he did throughout his two terms in office. And why did he authorize the use of the War Office and the Treasury building for such services in Washington, D.C.? Jefferson's outlook on religion and government is more fully revealed in another 802 letter in which he wrote that he did not want his administration to be, quote, a government without religion, but one that would instead, quote, strengthen religious freedom. Separation of church and state is not the, the commandment of a, a state without religion. Jefferson was a true friend of the Christian faith, but was he a true Christian? A nominal Christian, as demonstrated by his lifelong practice of attending worship services, reading the Bible, and following the moral precepts of Christ, was Jefferson was not, and I must state this is in the opinion of the World Net Daily writer, a genuine Christian. In 1813, after his public career was over, Jefferson rejected the deity of Christ. Like so many millions of church members today, he was outwardly religious, but never experienced the new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus was necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Nonetheless, Jefferson's presidential acts would, if done today, send the ACLU marching into court. He signed legislation that gave land to Indian missionaries, put chaplains on the government payroll, and provided for the punishment of irreverent soldiers. He also sent Congress an Indian treaty that set money aside for a priest's salary and for the construction of a church. Most intriguing is the manner in which Jefferson dated an official document. Instead of, in the year of our Lord, Jefferson used the phrase, in the year of our Lord Christ. Christian historian David Barton has the proof the original document signed by Jefferson, quote, on the 18th day of October in the year of our Lord Christ, 1804, unquote. The Supreme Court ruled in 1947 that Jefferson's wall of separation between church and state, quote, must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach. There is no doubt in my mind, however, that since, ever since the late 1800s, the Supreme Court has done the work of the Jewish robber barons and the plutocrats and not the people. That's my comment. Judging from the record, it looks like the wall some say Tom built is, in fact, the wall Tom breached. The real Thomas Jefferson, it turns out, is the ACLU's worst nightmare. Done with I'm, I'm finished with the World Net Daily article. Now, I would assert that if Thomas Jefferson went out of his way to sign documents in the year of our Lord Christ, and he published a book, for whatever reason, which included all of the sayings of Christ, then he was indeed a Christian. And imperfect Christianity does not disqualify a moral man from being a Christian, since all sects have an imperfect Christianity, or otherwise, we should have no sects. I would prefer to consort with a man who was critical of miracles, but adored the moral precepts of Christ and his commandments, rather than with a man who believed in miracles and praised that Jesus would cure his herpes. The man who wrote those phrases in the Declaration of Independence, which recognize nature's, nature and nature's God, and that creator who endows us with unalienable rights, and who also risked limb and fortune for his country, who recognized Jesus Christ as Lord, 
What better Christian could he be? Now, in recent times, the Jews have sought to destroy Jefferson with another evil slander, the propaganda concerning the Negress Sally Hemings. Yet even if that is true, that the DNA and the descendants of that Negress does match that of the Jefferson family, it only proves that a Jefferson male, one of 38 in Virginia at the time, had relations with her which resulted in offspring. It does not prove that the male in question was Thomas. A much better candidate was his brother, Randolph Jefferson, who was known to have drank and caroused with his slaves and who lived on a plantation next door. I'm sorry, I lost my place again. Here is an excerpt from an 1815 letter by Thomas Jefferson to one Dr. Waterhouse. The priests have so disfigured the simple religion of Jesus that no one reads the sophistications they have engrafted on it. From the jargon of Plato, of Aristotle, and other mystics would conceive, the, would conceive these could have been fathered on a sublime preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. Yet, knowing the importance of names, they have assumed that of Christians, while they are mere Platonists or anything rather than disciples of Jesus. So Jefferson realized the false doctrines of the priesthood. Later, Jefferson professed in an 1822 letter to the same Dr. Waterhouse that, quote, there is only one God, and he, all perfect, that there is a future state of rewards and punishments to love that God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself is the sum of religion. And we see that that's a precept of, of Christ himself, and, and he's basically paraphrasing Paul of Tarsus. Thomas Jefferson risked his life and was threatened with trial for treason against the British, first in 1774, as a member of the Virginia legislature. He was a wealthy man and a lawyer who could have lived comfortably having done nothing. Yet, he stood up for the rights of the English freemen in the colonies, withstanding the tyranny which the British sought to impose upon them. With Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. He was one of the three principal authors of the Declaration of Independence. And to understand what those men meant by their famous words, one must understand the rest of their writings and their actions. And what they opposed in order to find necessary to write the document in the first place. Jefferson also opposed the central bank and he also wrote outlining the true purpose of the General Welfare Clause of the Constitution, and he warned about its potential abuse, among other things, which we today have for the most part forgotten in our history books and in our educational institutions. The Jews seek to destroy Jefferson, one of the pillars of the founding of this great Christian nation, so that they can continue to justify their crimes against us and so that we can continue to be oblivious 
to the true nature of those crimes. Hardly would we study the papers of noble men in our school today. Surely we wouldn't study the papers of a man soiled by hypocrisy. Yet Jefferson was no hypocrite. Only those who make him out to be, they are the hypocrites. Here are some quotes from Thomas Jefferson, of which the source is Merrill D. Peterson, editor, Jefferson Writings, New York, Literary Classics of the United States, 1984, volume 4, page 289, from Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia, Query 18, written in 1781. God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift of God. And that's something that we all have forgotten, for the most part, that the rights that our founders asserted, they asserted, came from God. If your rights come from God, no man can take them from you. If you believe your rights come from the government, then the government has every right to take them from you. And you probably deserve to lose them. Jefferson continues, that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Today, we pray for that justice. Excerpts from this were inscribed on the walls of the Jefferson Memorial in the nation's capital. Jefferson has also been quoted as having said, the doctrines of Jesus are simple and tend to all the happiness of man. Again, of all the systems of morality, ancient or modern, which have come under my observation, none appears to be so pure as that of Jesus. And again, I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus, not a doer of the works like most Christians are today. Even the Protestants who go to church, profess Jesus, get baptized in water, and then go home and rent porno flicks and watch Negroes run balls up and down a field all day. Another Virginian, James Madison, was another brilliant man. Shamefully, the Jews who control our media only want us to dote on his wife, Dolly, or visions of her. Madison was born at Port Conway, Virginia, on the 16th of March, 1751. His first ancestor in America may have been Captain Isaac Madison, M-A-D-D-Y-S-O-N, a colonist of 1623 mentioned by John Smith as an excellent Indian fighter. His father, also named James Madison, was the owner of a large estate in Orange County, Virginia. In 1769, Madison entered the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton University, where, in the same year, he founded the well-known literary club, the American Whig Society. He graduated in 1771, but remained for another year at Princeton studying, apparently for the ministry under the direction of John Witherspoon. In 1772, he returned to Virginia, where he pursued his reading and studies, especially theology and Hebrew. That's important. 
and acted as a tutor to the younger children of the family. In 1775, he became chairman of the Committee of Public Safety for Orange County and wrote its response to Patrick Henry's call for the arming of a colonial militia. And in the spring of 1776, he was chosen a delegate to the new Virginia Convention, where he was on the committee which drafted the Constitution for the state. So he was on that same committee upon which George Mason wrote the Bill of Rights, where he was on the committee which, which was not adopted, which declared that, quote, all men are equally entitled to the full and free exercise of religion, and it was more radical than the similar one offered by George Mason. So they were competitors. In 1777, largely it seems, because he refused to treat the electors with rum and punch after the custom of the time, he was not reelected. But in November of the same year, he was chosen a member of the Privy Council or Council of State, in which he acted as interpreter for a few months. As secretary, prepared papers for the governor, and in general took a prominent part from the 14th of January, 1778, until the end of 1779, when he was elected a delegate to the Continental Congress. So here we see another wealthy man who risked all on behalf of the freedom of his nation. And it is obvious from his studies and his fruits that he was a devout Christian. He was also considered to be later the father of the Constitution, and he was our fourth president. So it is apparent that the principal author of the United States Constitution was trained to be a Christian pastor, especially having studied in theology in Hebrew. Therefore, he must have had a first-hand knowledge of the laws of Yahweh our God, which far surpassed anything that, that comes out of the so-called Judaized, or, or the, the, the Judaized so-called New Testament pastors of today. The author of our Constitution was not a Jew, nor was he a Mason, as we know Masons today. Rather, he was a studied Christian man of God. The last paragraph of James Madison's first inaugural address, given in Washington, D.C., March 4, 1809. But the source to which I look, or the aids which alone can supply my deficiencies, is in the well-tried intelligence and virtue of my fellow citizens, and in the counsels of those representing them and the other departments associated in the care of the national interest. In these, my confidence will, under every difficulty, best be placed next to that which we have all been encouraged to feel in the guardianship and guidance of that almighty being whose power regulates the destiny of nations. We saw the very similar quotes from Hancock and Adams, whose blessings, and Washington, whose blessings have been so conspicuously dispensed to this rising republic, and to whom we are bound to address our devout gratitude for the past, as well as our fervent supplications and best hopes for the future. I have here a lengthy paper written by Madison. It is an important study because it reflects the thoughts concerning religion 
of the very man who was the major contributor to the writing of our Constitution. Much earlier in Madison's political career, certain members of the Virginia legislature wanted to hire Christian teachers at the expense of the state, or rather of the taxpayer. And we'll see Madison differs from Jefferson in this respect. James Madison wrote this treatise against the idea. It is a very worthwhile read, since one may immediately think that Madison was writing from an anti-Christian viewpoint. Rather, Madison correctly argued against taxpayer-supported religion precisely because he was a Christian. It also fully exhibits the definite nature, Christian nature of the people, and that they expected a Christian government, and they expected Christianity in government. This was written only a few years before the Constitution itself. Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments James Madison, Virginia, Saturday, June 20th, 1785. To the Honorable and General Assembly of the Commonwealth of Virginia, a memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments. We, the subscribers, citizens of the said Commonwealth, having taken into serious consideration a bill printed by order of the last session of the General Assembly entitled, A Bill Establishing a Provision for Teachers of the Christian Religion, and conceiving that the same if finally armed with the sanctions of the law, will be a dangerous abuse of power, are bound as faithful members of a free state to remonstrate against it, and to declare the reasons by which we are determined we remonstrate against the said bill. Because we hold it for a fundamental and undeniable truth that religion, or the duty to which we owe our Creator and the manner of discharging it. So here we see James Madison defined religion exactly the same way that George Mason did, can be directed only by reason of conviction and not by force or violence. Notice that Madison cannot conscience a denial of our creator in all of this. Jews be damned. The religion, then, of every man must be left to the conviction and the conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. That right is in its nature an unalienable right. It is unalienable because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of other men. It is unalienable also because what is here a right towards men is a duty towards the Creator. It is the duty of every man to render to the Creator such homage as such and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. Religion before government. God before the Pharisees. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. And if a member of civil society, do it with a saving of his allegiance to the universal sovereign. 
These are the words of the father of our Constitution. God comes first. We maintain, therefore, that in matters of religion, no man's right is abridged by the institution of civil society, and that religion is wholly exempt from its cognizance, meaning the state cannot have an official religion enforced on men. True it is that no other rule exists by which any question which may divide a society can ultimately be determined. But the will of the majority... But it is also true that the majority may trespass on the rights of the minority. He's not advocating that. He's pointing it out. Remember, this is the constant father of our Constitution, James Madison. Because religion be exempt from the authority of the society at large, still less can it be subject to that of the legislative body. The later of a creatures and vice regions of the former. So he's saying that the legislative body is should be subservient to God. Their religion is both derivative, I'm sorry, their jurisdiction is both derivative and limited. It is limited with regard to the coordinate departments. More necessarily, it is limited with regard to the constituents. The preservation of a free government requires not merely that the meets and bounds which separate each department of power be invariably maintained, but more especially, that neither of them be suffered to overleap the great barrier which defends the rights of the people. The rulers who are guilty of such an encroachment exceed the commission from which they derive their authority and are tyrants. The people who submit to it are governed by laws made neither by themselves nor by an authority derived from them and are slaves. I must state Welcome to Modern America, described by James Madison, 225 years ago. This is why I consistently call America a tyranny. It gets better. Two, because it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties, we hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the late revolution. The free men of America did not wait till usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise, as our men have today, and entangled the question in precedence. They saw all the consequences in the principle, and they avoided the consequences by denying the principle. We revere this lesson too much soon to forget it. It took about 120 years. Who does not see that the same authority which can establish Christianity in exclusion of all other religions may establish with these any particular sect of Christians in exclusion of all other sects? Well, well now they've excluded all religions in the name of religion. Or, or they've basically done just the opposite than Madison feared. And this is what the founders were concerned with, which, which is why they refused to make any religion official. That the same authority which can force a citizen to contribute three pence only of his property for the support of any one establishment, the Christian teachers of the state wanted to hire, may force him to conform to any other establishment in all cases whatsoever. The exact situation we live in today. 
Because the bill violates the equality which ought to be the basis of every law and which is more indispensable in proportion as the validity or expediency of any law is more liable to be impeached. If, quote, all men are by nature equally free and independent, unquote, all men are to be considered as entering into society on equal conditions, as relinquishing no more and therefore retaining no less one than another of their natural rights. Above all, are they to be considered as retaining an equal title to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. He's quoting George Mason. Whilst we assert for ourselves a freedom to embrace, to profess, and to observe the religion which we believe to be of divine origin, so he admits the Christianity he believes to be of divine origin, we cannot deny an equal freedom to those whose minds have not yet yielded to the evidence which has convinced us. If this freedom be abused, it is an offense against God, not against man. To God, therefore, not to man, must an account of it be rendered, as the bill violates equality by subjecting some to peculiar burdens, which is the burden of taxation to support those who may be of a different sect of Christianity. So it violates the same principle by granting to others peculiar exemptions. Are the Quakers and Mennonites the only sects who think a compulsive support of their religions unnecessary and unwarrantable? Can their piety alone be entrusted with the care of public worship? Ought their religions to be endowed above all others with extraordinary privileges by which proselytes may be enticed from all others? We think too favorably of the justice and good sense of these denominations to believe that they either covet preeminences over their fellow citizens or that they will be seduced by them from the common opposition to the measure. Because the bill implies either that the civil magistrate is a competent judge of religious truth or that he may employ religion as an engine of civil policy which is exactly what we have today for the IRS tax exemption program. The first is an arrogant pretension falsified by the contradictory opinions of rulers in all ages and throughout the world. The second, an unhallowed perversion of the means of salvation, meaning the civil policy, which today most people rely on for salvation. Five. Because the establishment proposed by the bill is not requisite for the support of the Christian religion. To say that it is, is a contradiction to the Christian religion itself, for every page of it disavows a dependence on the powers of this world. It is a contradiction to fact, for it is known that this religion both existed and flourished, not only without the support of human laws, but in spite of every opposition from them. And not only during the period of miraculous aid, meaning the gospel period, but long after it had been left to its own evidence and the ordinary care of providence. Nay, it is a contradiction in terms for a religion not invented by human policy must have pre-existed and been supported before it was established by human policy. It is, moreover, to weaken in those who profess this religion a pious confidence in its innate excellence and the patronage of its 
author, meaning Christ, and to foster in those who still reject it a suspicion that friends are too conscious of its fallacies to trust to its own merits. I must say that this is really brilliant. Madison clearly proves that Christianity has stood, will stand, and must stand on its own without the support of law so long as it is truth. And Madison reveals what his own mind believes about Christianity, that it was divinely inspired and not made by men. Therefore, it must stand without assistance from men. It's this attitude that created our Constitution. Six, because experience witnesses that ecclesiastical establishments, instead of maintaining the purity and efficacy of religion, has had a, have had a quite contrary operation. During almost 15 centuries, has the legal establishment of Christianity been on trial? Madison is counting from the time of Constantine the Great. The founders of this nation had a much better sense of history than we do today. They actually read books and didn't wait for the watered-down television versions of history authored by the Jews. Here, Madison makes a correct argument that the professional priesthoods sanctioned by the state have only polluted Christianity, which we all know to be true. He goes on. What have been its fruits? More or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity. Ditto today. In both superstition, bigotry, and persecution, and choir of the teachers of Christianity for the ages, in which it appeared in its greatest luster, those of every sect point to the ages prior to its incorporation with civil policy, the beast. Propose a restoration of this primitive state in which its teachers depended on the voluntary rewards of their flocks, many of them predict its downfall. In other words, they don't want to be off the guaranteed dole. That is the professional priesthood Madison lambasts here. He asks, on which side ought their testimony to have the greatest weight? When for or when against their interests? In other words, an oppressive priesthood is all for compulsory religion and tithing. Seven. Because the establishment in question is not necessarily necessary for the support of civil government, if it be urged as necessary for the support of civil government only as it is a means of supporting religion, and it be not necessary for the later purpose, it cannot be necessary for the former. In other words, civil government can exist apart from religious injunctions and strictures. If religion be not within the cognizance of the civil government, how can its legal establishment be necessary to civil government? What influence, in fact, have ecclesiastical establishments had on society? In some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of civil authority. And by that he means the Roman Pope Christianity, or Churchianity. In many instances, they have been seen upholding the thrones of 
political tyranny as Judaized Christianity does today. In no instance have they, been, have they been seen to be the guardians of the liberties of the people. Established religion and, and state religions have never been the guardian, guardians of the liberties of the people, ever. Rulers who wish to subvert the public liberty may have found an established clergy convenient auxiliaries. This describes America today, where the clergy is controlled through tax exemptions and they go along 100% with government oppression and unjust imperialism abroad. To continue with Madison, a just government instituted to secure and perpetuate it needs them not. Such a government will be best supported by protecting every citizen and the enjoyment of his religion with the same equal hand which protects his person and his property by neither invading the equal rights of any sect nor suffering any sect to invade those of another. Eight. Because the proposed establishment is a departure from the generous policy which, offering an asylum to the persecuted and oppressed of every nation and religion, meaning those who had already come from Europe in search of religious freedoms, promised a luster to our country and an ascension, accession to the number of its citizens. What a melancholy mark is the bill of a sudden degeneracy. Instead of holding forth an asylum to the persecuted, it is itself a signal of persecution. It degrades from equal rank of citizens all those whose opinions in religion do not bend to those of the legislative authority. Distant as it may be in its present form from the Inquisition, it differs from it only in degree. This one is the first step, the other the last, in the career of intolerance. The magnanimous sufferer under this cruel scourge in foreign regions must view the bill as a beacon on our coast, warning him to seek some other haven where liberty and philanthropy in their due extent may offer a more certain repose from his troubles. So the beginning of the legislation of Christianity by the government was seen by Madison as the first step towards tyranny, and we see that in the IRS 501c3 regulations. You want your tax break? You listen to us. Nine, because it will have a like tendency to banish our citizens, the allurements presented by other situations are every day thinning their number. To super add a fresh motive to emigration by revoking the liberty which they now enjoy would be the same species of folly which is dishonored and depopulated flourishing kingdoms. Because it will destroy that moderation and harmony which the forbearance of our laws to intermeddle with religion has produced among its several sects. Torrents of blood have been spilled in the old world by vain attempts of the secular arm to extinguish religious discord by proscribing all difference in religious opinion. Time has at length revealed the true remedy. Every relaxation of narrow and rigorous policy, wherever it has been tried, has been found to assuage the disease. In other words, like Paul said, we ought not rule over each other's faith. The American theater has exhibited proofs that equal and complete liberty 
if it does not wholly eradicate it, sufficiently destroys its malignant influence on the health and prosperity of the state. If with the salutary effects of the system under our own eyes, we begin to contract the bounds of religious freedom, we know no name that will too severely reproach our folly. At least let warning be taken at the first fruits of the threatened innovation. The very appearance of the bill has transformed that Christian forbearance, love, and charity, which of late mutually prevailed into animosities and jealousies, which may not soon be appeased. What mischiefs may not be dreaded should this enemy to the public quiet be armed with the force of a law? 11. This is a good one. Because the policy of the bill is adverse to the diffusion of the light of Christianity. The first wish of those who enjoy this precious gift ought to be that it may not be imparted, I'm sorry, that it may be imparted to the whole race of mankind. Compare this number of those who have as yet received it with the number still remaining under the dominion of false religions, and how small is the former. A forced religion can never be a true religion, is what he's saying here. Does the policy of the bill tend to lessen the disproportion? No. It at once discourages those who are strangers to the light of revelation from coming into the region of it, and countenances, by examples, the nations who continue in darkness and shutting out those who might convey it to them. Instead of leveling, as far as possible, every obstacle to the victorious progress of truth, the bill with an ignoble and unchristian timidity would circumscribe it with a wall of defense against the encroachments of error. 12. Because attempts to enforce by legal sanctions acts obnoxious to so great a proportion of citizens tend to enervate the laws in general and to slacken the bands of society. If it be difficult to execute any law which is not generally deemed necessary or salutary, that must be the case where it is deemed invalid and dangerous. At what may be the effect of so striking an example of impotency in the government on its general authority? Because a measure of singular magnitude and delicacy ought not to be imposed without the clearest evidence that it is called for by a majority of citizens and no satisfactory method is yet proposed by which the voice of the majority in this case may be determined or its influence secured. The people of the respective countries are indeed requested to signify their opinion respecting the adoption of the bill to the next session of assembly. But the representatives of the counties will be that of the people. Our hope is that neither of the former will, after due consideration, espouse the dangerous principle of the bill. Should the event disappoint us, it will leave us in full confidence that a fair appeal to the later will reverse the sentence against our liberties. As soon as the state makes law favoring one Christian sect, none of us are free to make our own minds up about the Bible and the Word of God. And Madison feared that. He feared the, the oppression that would come from the state over anyone who differed over any matter in Christianity. That is why we have the Second Amendment. And that is why we have the First Amendment. So that we may safeguard our freedoms and our right to disagree with our fellow Christians over these matters. 
14. Because finally, the equal right of every citizen to the free exercise of his religion according to the dictates of conscience, again quoting Mason, is held by the same tenure with all our other rights. If we recur to its origin, it is equally the gift of nature. If we weigh its importance, it cannot be less due to us. We consult the declaration of those rights which pertain to the good people of Virginia as the basis and foundation of government. It is enumerated with equal solemnity, or rather studied emphasis. Either, then, we must say that the will of the legislature is the only measure of their authority, and that in the plenitude, plenitude of this authority, they may sweep away all our fundamental rights, or that they are bound to leave this particular right untouched and sacred. Make no laws respecting religion. Either we must say that they may control the freedom of the press, may abolish trial by jury, may swallow up the executive and judiciary powers of state, nay, that they may despoil us of our every right of, of our very right of suffrage, and erect themselves into an independent and hereditary assembly, or we must say they have no authority to enact into law the bill under consideration. In other words, if they encroach on one of our rights, they get them all. We, the subscribers, say that the General Assembly of this Commonwealth have no such authority, and that no effort be omitted on our part against so dangerous a usurpation, we oppose to it this remonstrance, earnestly praying, as we are in duty bound, that the supreme lawgiver of the universe, by illuminating those to whom it is addressed, may on the one hand turn their counsels from every act which would affront his holy prerogative, or violate the trust committed to them, and on the other, guide them into every measure which may be worthy of his blessing, may redound to their own praise, and may establish more firmly the liberties, the prosperity, and the happiness of the commonwealth. This ends James Madison's argument in a memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments. It is very important here to grasp the difference between a state not empowered to make laws concerning religion and an irreligious state. Expressions of piety and an obedience to God were expected by the men who founded this republic. They only agreed that such things would not be controlled by any particular sect, and that is the only intent of the First Amendment of our Constitution. Here it is perfectly clear that Congress shall make no law establishing religion, but that does not outlaw religion, nor does it proscribe religious expression in government. Indeed, those who originally wrote such things expected a Christian government. James Madison later openly informed us that the separation of powers in the Constitution were founded directly from Scripture that he received his inspiration for this feature of our government directly from Isaiah 33.22 is often repeated, except by our Jewish media. At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Madison proposed the plan to divide the central government into three branches. He discovered the model of, this, of government from the perfect governor. Here is that passage. Quote, for the Lord is our judge, the judicial the judicial branch, the Lord is our lawgiver, 
the legislative branch. The Lord is our king, the executive branch. He will save us, unquote. Madison claimed that he himself used, or, or, or this scripture made him realize that that is why we should have three branches of government in our new government. Now, there is no doubt that Madison himself made this analogy, but I have an idea that takes it a step further. Whether it was conscious in Madison's mind or not, that I must, uh, I must relate. The ancient republic of Israel was organized by Yahweh into two groups, the executive and the judicial, which are Yahweh himself, represented by his high priest, and the Levitical priesthood, to which he established to judge the people and to keep records and to carry out the business of the temple. However, the people were also permitted their own leaders in times of war and in order to administer to their immediate needs when the occasion arose. These were the equivalent of our legislative branch of government, and these were described by the words of Moses spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 10 to 15, in reference to Leviticus chapter 18. Yahweh your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times so many more as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I, meaning Moses, myself alone, bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Take to yourselves wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And he, you answered me and said, the thing which thou hast Spoken is good for us to do, so I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains of thousands, captains over hundreds, and captains over fifties, and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. In this manner, I believe, the American Constitution was modeled to a pattern which was surely as close as possible to that which the children of Israel had under Moses. They were a self-governing people under the auspices of the sovereignty of God. The divine law was their rule, and the Levites their judges, but they also had their legislative government in the captains of tens, hundreds, and thousands, which were appointed by the people from the bottom up to oversee the daily affairs of the people at each level. For this reason, the state assemblies consisted of men elected at the town level and they themselves chose a senator to represent them at the national level. In addition, there was another representative elected directly by the people from an area of each state, and this entire system, in essence, from bottom to top, is quite similar to the one found in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 1 mentioned above. And not only was the triunal nature of government which distributed the power of government among the people based upon Christian principles, but also other features of the Constitution are Christian, such as the right to trial by jury, the limitations on government powers, and most of the items found in the Bill of Rights. This system, as we have already seen here, was written into our Constitution by a man who was trained for the clergy in both theology and the Hebrew language, but chose instead to become a lawyer. He must have had a great familiarity with the government and the laws of Yahweh our God, and that must have affected him and his writing of the Constitution. It is only providential 
that such a man could be in that place at that particular time. As we have already seen in this presentation, Adams, too, was originally meant for the clergy, and Samuel Huntington was meant to be a farmer. Benjamin Franklin, he started off life as a candlemaker's apprentice, yet they both, be, yet two of them, Huntington and Adams, became lawyers. The hand of providence is surely manifest to me in these things. These men would have been wasted behind either the pulpit or the plow. The following quotes are attributed to James Madison. Religion is the basis and foundation of government, said to have been spoken on June 20th, 1785. It is not the talking, but the walking and working, the per and working person that is the true Christian. This is said to have been in a manuscript on the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles that Madison makes this statement. It is an attitude which we have seen already reflected here by Adams, Jefferson, and others. It is also a healthy Christian attitude. We have all been encouraged to feel in the guardianship and guidance of that almighty being whose power regulates the destiny of nations. March 4, 1809, his inaugural address, already cited above. We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We've staked the future of all our political institutions upon our capacity to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. He made that to the General Assembly of the State of Virginia. Cursed be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. He is cited as having said that in America's Providential History, page 93. Yet even if all these quotes did not exist, the remarks which Madison made in his arguments against the establishment of taxpayer-supported Christian teachers in the Virginia legislature, and his remarks about the Constitution and Isaiah, a definite part of our public records, by themselves prove that not only was Madison a Christian, but that this nation was founded on Christian principles through and through. The following is from the Christian life and character of the civil institutions of the United States, beginning from page 247. It is from a compilation of arguments which demonstrate that, while the Constitution was a Christian document, it did not mandate Christianity. It is from a very long chapter, which I shall only read parts of. This book will be posted on my website along with the archive of this program. The convention accordingly met in Philadelphia on May 14, 1787. And after four months of solemn deliberation, the federal constitution was formed and sent to the states and the people for ratification. After very thorough discussion before the people, it was adopted and went into practical operation. It was the most fortunate thing for America, says Curtis in his History of the Constitution, that the Revolutionary Age, with its hardships, its trials, and its mistakes, had formed a body of statesmen capable of framing for it a durable Constitution. The leading persons in the convention which formed the Constitution had been actors in civil or military life in the scenes of the Revolution. In these scenes, their characters as American statesmen had been formed. 
When the condition of the liberty, uh, I'm sorry, when the condition of the country had fully revealed the incapacity of the government to provide for its wants, these men were naturally looked to to construct a system to save it from anarchy. And their great capacities, their high disinterested purposes, their freedom from all fanaticism and illiberality, and their earnest, unconquerable faith in the destiny of their country enabled them to found that government which now upholds and protects the whole fabric of liberties in the states of the Union. Of this convention, says the writer, considering the character of the men, the work in which they were engaged, and the results of their labor, I think them the most remarkable body ever assembled. This constitution... Formed by, formed by such a body of able and wise statesmen, contains no recognition of the Christian religion nor even an acknowledgment of the providence of God in national affairs. I should say no explicit recognition. This omission, and, and they're not my words, this omission was greatly regretted by the Christian public at the time of the adoption of the Constitution as it has been by the Christian sentiment of the nation ever since. Yet, I will say that if we read Madison's remonstrance, as I've just read, we would understand why the Constitution did not make explicit mention of Christianity. Although, support for Christianity is certainly inferred in the Constitution, and we will see that to some degree today. After he, Washington, was inaugurated in 1789 as the first president under the Constitution, the Presbytery Eastward in Massachusetts and New Hampshire sent a Christian address to Washington in which they say, quote, We should not have been alone in rejoicing to have seen some explicit acknowledgement of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent inserted somewhere in the Magna Carta of our country. To this, Washington replies, I am persuaded you will per permit me to observe that the path of true piety is so plain as to require but little political direction. To this consideration, we ought to ascribe the absence of any regulation respecting religion from the Magna Carta of our country. To the guidance of the ministers of the gospel, this important object is, perhaps, more properly committed. And in the progress of morality and science, to which our government will give every furtherance, we may confidently expect the advancement of true religion and the completion of our happiness. Notwithstanding this omission, the record of facts, now to pass before the reader, will demonstrate that the Constitution was formed under Christian influences and is, in its purposes and spirit, a Christian instrument. The Christian faith and character of the men who formed the Constitution forbid the idea that they designed not to place the Constitution and its government under the providence and projection, protection of God and the principles of the Christian religion. In all their previous state papers, they had declared Christianity to be fundamental to the well-being of society and government, and in every form of official authority had stated this fact. We have seen this much earlier in this presentation with Franklin, Adams, Madison, Mason, and Hancock. To continue, the Declaration of Independence contained a solemn appeal to the supreme judge of the world and expressed a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. An article in the old Confederation, the Articles of Confederation, had declared that, quote, 
it had pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of the legislators, we severally representing Congress to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. The various states who had sent these good and great men to the convention to form a constitution had, in all their civil charters, expressed as states and as a people their faith in God and the Christian religion. Most of the statesmen themselves were Christian men. And the convention had for its president, George Washington, who everywhere paid a public homage to the Christian religion. Let me state that the same book also exhibits practically the entire body of such evidence directly from those state constitutions, which I, of course, have no time for here. These statesmen met to form a constitution for a free and growing republic, were at times baffled in reaching desirable and harmonious results. I can well recollect, says Judge Wilson, a member of the Constitutional Convention, quote, though I cannot believe, though I cannot, I believe, convey to others the impression which on many occasions was made by the difficulties which surrounded and pressed the Convention. The great undertaking at some time seemed to be at a stand at other times, its motions seemed to be retrograde. At the conclusion, however, of our work, the members expressed their astonishment at the success with which it terminated. It was in the midst of these difficulties that Dr. Franklin, on the morning of 28th of June, 1787, rose and delivered the following address, meaning Benjamin Franklin. Mr. President, the slow progress we have made after four or five weeks' close attendance and continual reasoning with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many nays as yeas, is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined different forms of those republics which, having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution, now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend, or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if the sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an entire empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe 
that without his concurring aid we shall we, we sh, that without his concurring aid we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves will become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate circumstance, despair of establishing governments by human wisdom, and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg to beg leave to motion to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations will be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. End of my quote from Franklin. Madison says that, quote, Mr. Sherman seconded the motion. Mr. Hamilton and several others expressed their apprehensions that, however proper such a revolution might have been, a resolution might have been at the beginning of the convention, it might at this late day, in the first place, bring on it some disagreeable animadversions or strong criticisms, and in the second, lead the public to believe that the embarrassments and dissensions within the convention had suggested this measure. It was answered by Dr. Franklin, Mr. Sherman, and others that the past omission of a duty could not justify a further omission, that the rejection of such a proposition would expose the convention to more unpleasant animadversions than the adoption of it, and that the alarm out of doors might be excited for the state of things within would at least be as likely to do good as ill. Mr. Williamson observed that the true cause of the omission could not be mistaken. The convention had no funds. Mr. Randolph proposed, in order to give a favorable aspect to the measure, that a sermon be preached at the request of the convention on the 4th of July, the anniversary of independence, and thenceforward prayers, etc., to be read in the convention every morning. Here there are, end of my quote, here there are other accounts of the appeals made to God the inspiration and agreement during the Constitutional Convention, which I will not repeat. They certainly do demonstrate that the founders, while they often found it difficult to agree amongst each other, could agree to humble themselves and to pray for aid and understanding. After the Convention had closed its doors and the Constitution had been adopted, Dr. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, acknowledged a divine intervention as follows. I am not to be understood to infer that our general convention was divinely inspired when it formed the new federal constitution. Yet I must own that I have so much faith in the general government of the world by providence that I can hardly conceive a transaction of so much importance to the welfare of millions now in existence and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass Without, some, without being in some degree influenced, guided, and governed by that omnipotent and beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their being. End of Franklin quote. It appears to me, writes Washington to Lafayette on February 8, 1788, little short of a miracle 
that the delegates from so many states differing from each other, as you know, in their manners, circumstances, and prejudices, should unite in forming a system of national government so little liable to well-founded objections. It will at least be a recommendation to the proposed Constitution that it is provided with more checks and barriers against the introduction of tyranny and those of a nature less liable to be surmounted than any government hitherto instituted among mortals. We are not to expect perfection in this world, but mankind in modern times have apparently made some progress in the science of government. And they did leave us with a good constitution. We just failed to safeguard it. To continue quoting Washington, we may be, we may with a kind and pious and grateful exultation, writes Washington to Governor Trumbull of Connecticut, July 20th, 1788, trace the finger of providence through those dark and mysterious events which first induced the states to appoint a general convention and then led them one after another by such steps as were best calculated to affect the object into an adoption of the system recommended by the general convention, thereby in all human probability laying a lasting foundation for tranquility and happiness when we had too much reason to fear that confusion and misery were coming upon us. On his way to New York, after its adoption, to assume the administration of the new government, processions and ovations were frequent in honor of the adoption of the Constitution and as a tribute to the good and great man who had presided over the convention that formed it. At Philadelphia, 20,000 people met and welcomed Washington with cries of, Long live George Washington, long live the father of his country. Washington, in addressing the people of that city, spoke as follows, quote, when I contemplate the interposition of providence as it had been visibly manifested in guiding us through the revolution and preparing us for the general government and in conciliating the goodwill of the people of America towards one another in its adoption, I feel myself oppressed and overwhelmed with a sense of the divine munificence. It has sometimes been concluded, says a writer, another writer, that Christianity cannot have any direct connection with the Constitution of the United States of America, on the ground that the instrument contains no express declaration to the effect. But the error of such a conclusion becomes manifest when we reflect that the same is the case with regard to several other truths, which are, notwithstanding, fundamental in our constitutional system. The Declaration of Independence says that, quote, governments are instituted among men to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that, quote, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. These principles lie at the foundation of the Constitution of the United States. No principles, no principles in the Constitution are more fundamental than these. But the instrument contains no declaration to this effect. These principles are nowhere mentioned in it, and the references to them are equally slight and indirect with those which are made to the Christian religion. In other words, the writer is arguing that our founding documents are to be taken as a whole, that one built upon another. 
The same may be said of the great Republican truth that political sovereignty resides in the people of the United States. If then anyone may rightfully conclude that Christianity has no connection with the Constitution of the United States because this is nowhere expressly declared in the instrument, he ought, in reason, to be equally convinced that the same Constitution is not built upon and does not recognize the sovereignty of the people. The mind which perverts things, which would pervert everything. And the great Republican troops quoted above from the Declaration of Independence. This argument receives additional strength when we consider that the Constitution of the United States was formed directly for political and not for religious objects. The truth is, they are all equally fundamental, though neither of them is expressly mentioned in the Constitution. Besides, the Constitution of the United States contemplates and is fitted for such a state of society as Christianity alone can form. We've already seen this here in the attitude of John Adams in some of his speeches. It contemplates a state of society which, in which strict integrity, simplicity, and purity of manners, wide diffusion of knowledge, well-disciplined passions, and wise moderation are the general characteristics of the people. These virtues in our nation are the offspring of Christianity. And without the continued general belief of its doctrines and practice of its precepts, they will gradually decline and eventually perish. This was written in 1864 or 63. Today we have witnessed it. The Constitution declares that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification of any public office or public trust under the United States. On this article, Judge Story, a delegate to the convention, says, The clause requiring no religious test for office is recommended by its tendency to satisfy the minds of many delicate and scrupulous persons who entertain a great repugnance, repugnance to religious tests as a qualification for civil power or honor. But it has higher aim in the, cons in the Constitution. It is designed to cut off every pretense of an alliance between the church and the state in the administration of the national government. The American people were too well read in the history of other countries, unlike today, and had suffered too much in their colonial state not to dread the abuses of authority resulting from religious bigotry, intolerance, and persecution meaning the dominance of Anglicans or Catholics. The First Amendment to the Constitution is that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The same policy, says Judge Story, which introduced into the Constitution the prohibition of any religious test, led this more extended prohibition of the interference of Congress in religious concerns. We are not to attribute this prohibition of a national religious establishment to an indifference to religion in general and especially to Christianity, which none could hold in more reverence than the framers of the Constitution, but to a dread by the people of the influence of ecclesiastical power in the matters of government, which we saw for 1,300 years in papacy, a dread which their ancestors brought with them from the parent country, 
and which, unhappily for human infirmity, their own conduct after their emigration had not in any just degree tended to diminish. Think of the Salem witch trials. It was also obvious from the numerous and powerful sects in the United States that there would be perpetual temptations to struggles for ascendancy in the national councils. If anyone might thereby hope to found a permanent and exclusive national establishment of its own, and religious persecutions might thus be introduced to an extent utterly subversive of the true interests of the good and order of the republic. The most effectual mode of suppressing the evil in the view of the people was to strike down the temptations to its introduction. How far any government has a right to public to interfere in matters touching religion has been a matter much discussed upon by writers of public and political law. The right of a society or government to interfere in matters of religion will hardly be contested by any person to believe that piety, religion, and morality are intimately connected with the well-being of the state and indispensable to the administration of civil justice. The promulgation of the great doctrines of religion, the being and attributes of and providence of one almighty God, the responsibility to him for all of our actions, founded upon moral accountability, a future state of rewards and punishments, the cultivation of all the personal, social, and benevolent virtues. These can be a matter of indifference, that these never can be a matter of indifference in a well-ordered community. It is indeed difficult to conceive how any civilized society can exist without them. And, at all events, it is impossible for those who believe in the truth of Christianity as a divine revelation to doubt that it, that it is the special duty of government to foster and encourage it among all the citizens and subjects. This is a point wholly distinct from that of the right of private judgments in matters of religion. In other words, religion's a responsibility. Just don't tell me how to worship. And of the freedom of public worship according to the dictates of one's conscience. These were the real reasons for the First Amendment. The real difficulty lies in ascertaining the limits to which government may rightfully go in fostering and encouraging religion. Three cases may easily be supposed. One, where a government affords aid to a particular religion, leaving all persons free to adopt any other. Another, where it creates an ecclesiastical establishment for the propagation of the doctrines of a particular sect of that religion, leaving a like freedom to all others. And a third, where it creates such an establishment and excludes all persons not belonging to it, either wholly or in part, from any participation in the public honors, trusts, emoluments, privileges, and immunities of the state, like the IRS tax-exempt status today. For instance, the government may simply declare that the Christian religion shall be the religion of the state and shall be aided and encouraged in all the varieties of sects belonging to it, or it may declare that the Roman Catholic or Protestant religion shall be the religion of the state, leaving every man to the free enjoyment of his own religious opinions. Or it may establish the doctrines of a particular sect, as of Episcopalians, as the religion of the state, with a like freedom, 
or it may establish the doctrines of a particular sect as exclusively the religion of a state, tolerating others to a limited extent, or excluding all not belonging to it from all public honors, trusts, emoluments, privileges, and immunities. Probably at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and of the amendments to it, the general, if not universal, sentiment in America was that Christianity ought to receive encouragement from the state. So far as such encouragement was not compatible with the private rights of conscience and the freedom of religious worship. An attempt to level all religions and to make it a matter of state policy to hold all in utter indifference would have created universal disapprobation, if not universal indignation. In a work on the Constitution by James Bayard of Delaware, and which received the warm commendations of Chief Justice Marshall, Judge Story, Chancellor Kent, and other distinguished civilians and jurists, the writer speaks on his fundamental law of the Constitution thus. The people of the United States were so fully aware of the evils which arise from the union of church and state and so thoroughly convinced of its corrupting influence upon religion and government that they introduced this prohibition into the fundamental law. It has been made an objection to the Constitution by some that it makes no mention of religion, contains no religion of the existence and providence, no recognition of the existence and providence of God, as though his authority were slighted or disregarded. But such is not the reason of the omission. The convention, which framed the Constitution, comprised some of the wisest and best men of the nation, men who were firmly persuaded not only of the divine origin of the Christian religion, but also of its importance to the temporal and eternal welfare of men. The people, too, of this country were generally impressed with religious feelings and felt and acknowledged the superintendence of God who had protected them through the perils of war and blessed their exertions to obtain civil and religious freedom. But there were reasons why the introduction of religion into the Constitution would have been unseasonable, if not improper. In the first place, the Constitution was intended exclusively for civil purposes, and religion could not regularly be mentioned, because it made no part of the agreement between the parties. That's the best explanation of why the Constitution had to not mention religion. They were about to surrender a portion of their civil rights for the security of the remainder, but each retained his religious freedom entire and untouched as a matter between himself and his God, with which government could not interfere. But even if this reason had not existed, it would have been difficult, if not impossible, to use any expression on the subject which would have given general satisfaction. The difference between the various sects of Christians is such that, while all have much in common, there are many points of variance so that in an instrument where all are entitled to equal consideration, it would be difficult to use the terms in which all could cordially enjoin. This is what many lose point of in discussing the United States Constitution. The document was not meant to create a sovereign state in itself. Rather, the Constitution was meant as an agreement to confederate a group of already sovereign states.
the constitutions of those sovereign states treated the matter of religion. They all supported or made it a necessity to practice Christianity. Bayard continues, besides, the whole Constitution was a compromise, and it was foreseen that it would meet with great opposition before it would finally be adopted. It was, therefore, important to restrict its provisions to things absolutely necessary, so as to give as little room as possible to cavil or petty objection. Moreover, it was impossible to introduce into it even an expression of gratitude for the Almighty for the formation of the present government, for when the Constitution was framed and submitted to the people, it was entirely uncertain whether it would ever be ratified, and the government might therefore never be established. The prohibition of any religious test for office was unwise, because its admission would lead to hypocrisy and corruption. The purity of religion is best preserved by keeping it separate from government as the surest means of giving to it its proper influence in society is the dissemination of correct principles through education, something we severely lack today. The experience of this country has proved that religion may flourish in all its vigor and purity without the aid of a national establishment. And the religious feeling of the community is the best guarantee for the religious administration of the government. Moral people create and oversee moral government. To abridge this long document, I will always say that what follows is this. In the Massachusetts Assembly, from a Congregationalist pastor, we see an argument against the religious test for government office on the grounds that non-Christians would only swear false oaths anyway. Look at all these candidates we have today. In fact, Obama lied three times about what religion he was. He's really a Jew. Since they have no moral fears to bind them. Rather, the people should be trusted to elect moral men into office. And, and we've seen that didn't work out really anyway, did we? But that doesn't mean that we'd have done better with a formal profession of religion from candidates. It is the people who have failed, and I believe that failure began when we started to ignore our God and place our hopes of salvation in our government so that the government replaced our God. To most Americans today, even to church-going Americans, the government is their real God. To continue with Morris's book, the Constitution itself affirms its Christian character, and purpose. The seventh article declares, to be, uh, declares it to be framed and adopted, quote, <clears throat> by the unanimous consent of the states, the 17th day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1787, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 12th. The date of the Constitution is twofold. First, it is dated from the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then from the birth of our independence. Any argument which might suppo be supposed to prove that the authority of Christianity is not recognized by the people of the United States in the first mode would equally prove that the independence of the United States is not recognized by them in the second mo mode. The fact is that the advent of Christ and the independence of our country are the two events which, of all others, 
we are most interested. The former in common with all mankind, the later is the birth of our nation. This twofold, twofold mode, therefore, of dating so solemn an instrument was singularly appropriate and becoming. A second fact is the harmony of the purposes for which the Constitution was established with the purposes and results of Christianity as affecting nations and the temporal interests of men. The preamble states this political and moral harmony in these words. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our descendants, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. These fundamental objects of the Constitution are in perfect harmony with the revealed objects of the Christian religion. Union, justice, peace, the general welfare, and the blessings of civil and religious liberty are the objects of Christianity and are always secured under its practical and beneficent reign. If you don't believe that is true today, just go to a Muslim or a Jewish country and try to practice Christianity. To continue, our national constitution is fitted to quicken the growth of a real manhood, to discipline the virtuous citizen for an ampler reward in heaven than he would reach if he were not trained to think for himself, to govern himself, to develop his own powers, to worship his maker according to his conscience. A third fact indicating the Christian character of the Constitution is that in no less than four places it requires an oath. No person can hold an executive or judicial office under it or derive from any state who does not take an oath to support it. An oath is defined at this time to be, quote, a solemn appeal to the supreme being for the truth of what is said by a person who believes in the existence of a supreme being and in a future state of rewards and punishments according to that form which will bind his conscience most. Can it, be with, can it with propriety be said that a government which forbids the exercise of the slightest of its functions by anyone who cannot and has not made such an appeal to a supreme being in whom he believes does not recognize the authority of God? It includes other sovereignties and provides that there no man shall be entrusted with any power that concerns the whole people who fails to furnish this testimony of his religious character. It was objected in several of the state conventions upheld, held for the adoption of the federal constitution that it contained no religious test. It was argued that Mohammedans, pagans, or persons of no religion at all might be chosen into the government. And my note would be, so that it is, so it is obvious here that the common people obviously wished to exclude non-Christians. To continue, in North Carolina, Mr. Iredell replied, it was never to be supposed that the people of America will trust their dearest interests to the persons who have no religion at all or a religion materially different from their own. This was meant when men had common sense. It would be happy for mankind if religion was permitted to take its own course and maintain itself by the excellency of its doctrines. The divine author of our religion never wished for its support by a worldly authority. Has he not said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? It made much greater progress for itself when it was supported by the greatest authority on earth. 
I could follow Morris here through these proofs for many more pages. In his next proof, Morris demonstrates that the Constitution recognizes the Christian Sabbath, which it certainly does, and therefore it must be a Christian document, which it certainly is. However, it is near that time that I must conclude this presentation. The following was stated in Daniel Webster's address before the New York Historical Society. He says, if we and our posterity shall be true to the Christian religion, and if we and they shall live always in the fear of God and shall respect his commandments, if we and they shall maintain just and moral sentiments, such and such conscientious convictions of duty as shall control the heart and life, we may have the highest hopes of the future fortunes of our country. And if we maintain those institutions of government and that political union exceeding all praise as much as it exceeds all former examples of political association, we may be sure of one thing, that while our country furnishes materials for a thousand masters of the historic art, it will be no topic for a gibbon. It will have no decline and fall. It will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution which holds us together, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity. If that catastrophe, he continues, shall happen, let it have no history. Let the horrible narrative never be written. Let its fate be like that of the lost books of Livy, which no human eye shall ever read, or the missing pleiad, which, of which no man can know more than that it is lost and lost forever. It is readily apparent to me that our nation was founded by learned Christian men who left us a legacy of Christian documents that were not themselves a guarantee of the preservation of our freedoms, although they were excellent tools by which we may have safeguarded our own freedoms, yet we neglected to do so. It also seems quite providential to me that in the period following the 2,520-year punishment of the children of Israel, for it is 2,520 years from the first of the Assyrian deportations to 1776 AD and our Declaration of Independence, when we broke free of the kings of the old world. The Constitution of our new nation was founded upon the Republican principles of government for which the model was found in ancient Israel before our remote ancestors had in fact demanded the first of those very same kings from Yahweh. Joshua, come quickly. Thank you.
I'll be back with um, Eli and Sword Brother at 8 p.m.